This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. After surviving a vicious attack by a loved one, how do you put the pieces of your life back together? For Audrey Prosper, her journey of healing and rebuilding began after waking from a six-week coma. Audrey's estranged husband had tried to take her life. He attempted to sexually assault her, he beat her with a hammer, and set her on fire, burning 80% of her body. Audrey survived, and she refused to let the attack define her. Instead, she chose to rise from the ashes of her past with a voice and a mission. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. As a domestic violence survivor, Audrey Prosper uses her strong voice to advocate for change. She is the founder and CEO of National Domestic Violence Collaborative, an organization dedicated to building healthier communities, families, and relationships, and reducing the number of people impacted by domestic violence. Audrey also works to change the conversation surrounding domestic violence. To her, it's not a matter of victim versus villain. Instead, She aims to open minds in order to understand some of the root causes behind unhealthy relationships. Whether it's through legislative change, education, or empowering survivors, the impact of Audrey's work is wide-reaching. And in 2022, Audrey was awarded the Purple Ribbon Award for Survivor of the Year by DomesticShelters.org, a program of Alliance for Hope International. Today, Audrey Prosper joins me to share her story and her message. Chris and I met uh, when I was a very young and tender woman and fell in love and had a very um, fairy tale like story. We met, you know, on AOL, which was like the first social media ever. Um, he is 17 years my senior. So it was kind of this story of a young trophy wife meeting this older guy who is successful and stable, which was important to me at that time when I had daddy issues. I don't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, naturally, you know, we fell in love. Chris was the type of person and still is today that lights up a room. Everyone loved him. I never met a person who didn't. And we did not have a typical or statistical violent relationship in that Chris, from the very beginning, I articulated that he would never call me out of my name. He would never tell me to shut up and he would never put his hands on me. Otherwise, I would leave. And so that standard of um, the relationship was there from the beginning and he never did. And so we have a situation where for me, I felt like I was manipulated. There was definitely manipulation in that. Chris never really told me all of the facts about 
um, his life. I did not know that he was married. However, he was not with her. And I found out uh, three weeks after I gave birth to our first son that he was still legally married, had been legally married. And it was crushing for me because I thought that I was, you know, the first woman that he thought was so special that I would be his wife. And so I began to fall out of love with him. I also began to grow up. Um, And by the time I reached 26 years old, I had dealt with Chris having a very bad gambling addiction. It happened for the third year in a row. And so that stability that I needed as a young woman that I was now finding on my own, I no longer needed that. And I made the decision to walk away from the marriage. And so in doing so, Chris has his own backstory. We all do. And his backstory is deeply rooted in abandonment, being a child that was put into the foster care system at birth in New York City. And one can only imagine what could happen if someone were to feel triggered by the unresolved trauma of childhood abandonment. And I I believe that that is part of what happened. I believe that he had unresolved trauma. I believe unresolved trauma is a warning sign that we don't often talk about. And it triggered him to the point of almost killing me. And so, yeah, that's um, kind of how we we got to November 17th of 2009. Um, but I mean, in the seven or eight years we were together, I think we had seven disagreements. None of them were arguments. Uh, this man was a police officer in New York City for 20 years. He was on the right side of the law. And so nobody that knew him ever saw it coming to include myself. May I ask, when you talked about, you said, I grew up, as you were evolving and the dynamic was changing in the ways that you've described, uh, did you feel that he felt the dynamic was no longer acceptable then? That the one that you would enter into in the beginning, him with more, more the more ability to see because you didn't know he was married still, for example. Um, so as he was essentially, my words, not yours, losing you. As you were evolving, did that shift his acceptance of that marriage as well? And did he try to keep things as they are? You mentioned that he was manipulative. Was that apparent at that time? The common thread in our relationship is that Chris never really felt like he was deserving of this young, beautiful trophy wife. He could not fathom how he pulled this beautiful woman, right? And so he was consistently um, withholding information from me. That thread ran all the way through our relationship. It never changed. However, he always encouraged me to build you know, success for myself. We had this great idea that when he retired, he would be a stay-at-home dad. I would become the career woman. I always wanted to be a mother. And equally, my mother is very driven, and I wanted to be driven in that way as well. And so he was supportive of that. What he was never supportive of was me walking away. He absolutely begged, cried, pleaded from the depths of his heart for me not to leave. But at that point, I made the decision that was the, enough was enough. If you're in your 40s, you don't have your financial priorities straight, you're putting your family in jeopardy, it's time for me to walk away because that in which I'm relying on you for, you know, typically a man is protecting, providing was not happening. So, you know, it's a piece of the story that I've never really talked about, but it is my truth. You know, I did have those young girl daddy issues and I healed those over time. And that in part with his uh, behavior resulted in me 
making the decision that I was going to go out on my own. And so what then happened on that day in 2009? On that day in 2009, I was coming back from school. Chris and I had separated. We were living in separate places at that point. I still had a key to the home. I had told him prior to that I was going to be going to the house instead of my apartment in between school and work. So he knew that I had begged for him to take care of the kids. And he just kept saying that he couldn't that day. So I showed up at the home that day. I remember very vividly listening to a song by Justin Timberlake and T.I. singing it in my car. Um, It was a song, The Old Me is Dead and Gone. And when I went into the house the first time I was on the phone, I put down my book bag. I was in my first semester in college during this time period. And when I walked in, no one, but nobody was in the home. I remember trying to go into the master bedroom and the door was locked. And I thought that was odd. There was a key lock installed. And I was like, okay, well, he doesn't want me in his private space. And now that we're separated, I get that. And so I just carried on. I had started jogging every day. And so I went for a three mile jog, came back to the house And when I came back, I saw my neighbor standing outside, said hello to her, addressed the fact that Chris told her we were going to be getting divorced, and then re-entered the home. And when I re-entered the home, Chris charged at me, I mean, like a full-on linebacker from the NFL, and scooped me up right at the front door. I was so close to getting out of the front door, it was, you know, popped open just a couple of inches when he slammed that door. He had a butcher knife in his hand. He was stark naked shaved from the top of his head to the bottom of his body. And uh, it was clearly premeditated because he then shoved or not shoved me, but ushered me into the garage. And there was a blanket placed on the floor there. So it was our, my stepson's Yu-Gi-Oh blanket had no reason to be in the room. So I started putting these pieces together Uh, as he laid me down on the floor and began to attempt to sodomize me with a butcher knife to my throat. And during that time period, you are so overcome with shock. You don't, you know, it's freeze, fight or flight. We all say what we will do in a situation, but you don't know what you will do until you're in that situation. And every part of me said, do not fight back because he is enraged. The lights are on, but no one's home. You don't challenge someone who's bigger than you in a situation like that. And so I recall saying to him, you know, I've been thinking about this. I want to get back together. Please just stop doing what you're doing. I will never mention this to anyone. In essence, pleading for my life. Um, At that time, he was also uttering things like the fact that he was going to gut me like an effing pig. And all I could see was me bleeding out in that blanket, him probably wrapping me up and disposing of my body somewhere. And so he stopped uh, the attempt in the sexual assault, stood up and began to question me about the paternity of our oldest son, which I thought was mind boggling. And because both of our children were planned. And so at that point, I, you don't know what to say. If I say that he is, you're already enraged. If I say that he's not, because I think that's what you want to hear right now, you're still enraged. I'm still in jeopardy of dying. And I just said the truth because that's me. I'm just going to tell you like it is. He's yours. We plant him. Like, what are you talking about? And that very quickly escalated to him lighting a candle, putting it on the washer and dryer in the garage. And I knew the moment he lit the candle is the moment that I knew he was going to set me on fire. And he then doused me in gasoline. Uh, um, and very 
not very quickly, there was a moment when I, after the, I was doused in the gasoline that I looked at him and he had this look in his eyes as if he was trying to make a final determination that he was going to follow through with what he planned. And you could see him like, yep, like check himself. Yep, I'm going to. And then he threw the candle at me. So naturally, you know, it caught the fumes before anything. And I was up in flames and golf from my waist up. I couldn't see anything. But there was a moment where I had checked to see if the garage door was unlocked. It was a manual. It wasn't an automatic. And I just ran for that garage to lift that door up. You know, can't see anything, but I know where the door is. And I got it up just enough for me to duck under the door, you know, and roll out and then basically run to the grass and start rolling in the grass as fast as I could. My neighbor who was just next door happened to be walking back with her son from school. And she came and started hitting me with her son's jacket to help put the flames out. So obviously from there, 911 was called. I ended up being bay flighted, spent six weeks in a coma and another six weeks in the hospital and sustained burns over 80% of my body. In those moments of the attack, and you mentioned your, your sort of calibration of how to stay alive, were there other thoughts that were going through your head that supported that of your children? What else, if any, was going through your head during this? 100%. Like I skipped over the fact that he hit me with a hammer four times in the head. And, um, I recall the warmth of the blood coming down the left side of my face. And I just started praying, God, forgive me for my sins, take care of my sons and let me go to heaven. I just knew that was it. I was gone. And before, after he lit the candle, before he set me on fire is when I began to pray, God, just let me live. Just let me live. That's all I want. Just let me live because I had this vision of my sons and they were teenagers in this vision at the time they were four, not even one. And they were orphans. And I was like, heck no, like there's no way. And so the two, my two sons are the only reason why I fought for my life. For me, there was no other reason. Like I've never really felt, you know, we all live and die. It's just a part, part of life. Living is dying. So, but for them, I didn't want to leave them alone in the world. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the backstory you shared, as you said, there were no indications of violence. There were no red flags for you other than the erosion of stability and um, the lies. But there was no indicators, if I'm understanding correctly, that there was ever a violent tendency or certainly of this magnitude. When you mentioned the shock earlier, so when you come through the door and he charges you for the first time, you know, what did that feel like to have something so indescribably violent and also so surprising at the same time that this was a loved one? Can you share what that felt like? Well, and I have to say during the course of the relationship, there was not, there was one incident that occurred after we separated, but we're still living together where he attempted to rape me. And I called the police that night. This is, I mean, weeks before. So I left the home that night. I was not supposed to leave the home for a couple more months. And I recall a time going back to do this division of property. We were writing the stuff on the paper 
you take this, you take this. I'm like, you keep the house. I don't care when I'm done. I'm done. I'll leave everything behind and start over. And so at that moment, uh, he asked me while we were standing there by the breakfast bar, he said, are you afraid of me? And I said, yes. And he said, why? And I said, because I don't know what you're capable of now. So for seven and a half years of our marriage, nothing. The moment I decide that I don't want to be with him and it's final, an attempted rape happens. And three weeks later, I'm almost murdered. And going back to that moment, last question about the attack, the moment where, as you answered the question calmly, our son was planned, of course he's yours. And then you said it escalated and that's when he lit the candle. How did it escalate? Why did it escalate? I, you know, we psychoanalyze a lot after things. It's like hindsight's 2020. How it escalated was he was enraged. He was more enraged. And he just, to me, it felt like, it felt like I was getting payback for something that I didn't do. It almost felt like he was trying to conjure up something in his mind to give him the balls to carry out a murder. And so for me, it just, it went from, let me attempt to rape you. Let me bludgeon you in the head with a hammer to try to knock you out. Now I'm going to light this candle and set you on fire. Either A, because you'll never look the same or B, because I need to burn the evidence. So you run outside. The neighbor helps mm-hmm. extinguish the flames. You are airlifted. You said you were in a coma for all those weeks. And during that time, can you describe what happened with your children and what happened with your ex? So Chris was arrested at the scene. He attempted to harm himself physically on the scene. He also set fire to the house separately. So he was taken to the hospital for three days and then taken to county, processed. The boys were with their godmother and godfather at the time, and they remained in their temporary custody until I came home. And can you share the legal consequences of your ex's actions? Yes, he was sentenced to life plus 60 years, 30 of which he got just for setting his own house on fire. Part of what um, has struck me about, I've, I've read comments that you've shared where you've said you've never... Um, said anything bad about him to the boys and that they visit him annually and that you've described your open dialogue with them. Can you share about um, what I can only describe as that grace? For me, it, it came down to my son's identities. I know that a child, because I've lived it, feels as if they are half of their mother and half of their father. And if I were to badmouth their father, I would be inadvertently, maybe like subconsciously destroying half of their identity. So for me, they always took precedence. And if he in fact is or was really a villain, that was going to be for them to decide. The most important thing to me was to give them the most amount of strength and tenacity that I could from day one. And the reality is that while he did what he did, their father was an incredible father when he was in the free world. And he has done everything that he possibly can do from behind bars to be the best father that he can. And no one can take that away from him. Now, did we know that that was it was going to turn out that way? Absolutely not. We didn't. 
But I just wanted them to know that your father loved you. He wanted you. You were both planned. And he was an incredible human being until the very, very end. You know, but it is one is one instance a complete and total like can we judge an, a person's entire character on one instance of their entire life? So you've done things in your life. I've done things in my life. I would never want to be judged off of that one thing because I have every ability to grow, heal, overcome, and not have that character piece anymore. Has your ex apologized to you directly? Has he expressed remorse for his actions? Yes. And I think that that was an honorable thing because during the sentencing, he asked to speak after he was sentenced because he said he didn't want anyone to feel that what he had to say was an effort to get less of a sentence. And he, I mean, it's on YouTube. His apology is on YouTube. He apologized to me, his family, my family, all of his children. And, um, I remember showing the boys that video and they both, of course, just bawled their eyes out when they got older. We watched it together. And so, yeah, it's been one heck of a ride. (laughs) And um, with all the respect to them that this is their stories to share, can you say whether they have forgiven him and in their own development of their relationships, to your point, you know, as they form their own opinions, as you said, what conclusions have they drawn or what space are they in now? Both of the boys have forgiven them. Uh, Malachi, who is the older one, was much quicker to. He had many memories of his dad that Malik never had. Uh, Malik, it happened for him around nine years old after he saw him for the first time is when all of those emotions triggered and came up for him. (laughs) And we had a tough time for about a year and a half with him. And he openly shared with his father why he was upset, asked his father if he could explain why he did what he did. And of course, his father said, no, he's still, you know, um, appealing his case to which I explained to Malik at that time. He is appealing his case. Why would he say to you over the telephone why he did what he did? Like I have for me, I'm I'm just as I got to be straight up with the kids. I've had an open dialogue. And for me, that's the best thing that I could have ever done for them. So at every step of the way, I'm just explaining and helping them to the best of my ability, understand the entire the situation in its entirety. And can I explore that a little further when you say, so he's appealing his case. And so you're saying, how can, am I understanding right that you're, you're saying, how can you reconcile appealing the case and yet embracing full responsibility for your actions and, and asking for atonement? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you can't say on a recorded line, well, this is why I attempted to murder your mother. You can't say it in a, an email through a jailhouse email either, you know, but he has said things in other ways to them to ensure that they know that he was the one who was in the wrong and that he is remorseful for all of that and very grateful that they have allowed him to be a part of their lives. Let's move on for your to your advocacy and what that looks like and what the years since 2009 have looked like for you. Yeah, so for me, you know, when I came home, I never envision being an advocate when I came home from the hospital. I think the community supported me so much while I was in ICU that I kind of felt like I had a decision to make. Was I going to stay in hiding or was I going to use my voice for good in essence? And so I started speaking very early on. That was really part of how my advocacy started. And then I started working with women one-on-one and really guiding them through the court process because you don't know what you don't know until you're there. And um, 
from there, I started volunteering with a nonprofit and uh, called Break the Silence Against Domestic Violence and really helped to have the, the privilege and the honor of helping to build that movement from the ground up and got to see so many women and men break their silence nationwide uh, through that movement, which was just incredible and build lifelong relationships with other survivors as well, create programs and like host retreats for women. Like it's just been amazing. And so a couple of years ago, uh, there was about, I don't know, eight advocates. We were on a zoom call talking about what was really missing and what we needed. And through that phone call, uh, what we really discovered was that we needed to advocate differently because we've been doing the same thing for so long, expecting a different result. And the numbers are not going down. The numbers have been one in three for decades. They've been one in three since I've been an advocate. So National Domestic Violence Collaborative, my nonprofit, was launched. And really, that's what we set out to do was to advocate differently. And part of that included looking at the other side and what services should be offered to the other side. Because if we continue to discuss the topic through the lens of victim versus villain, um, it's really great for getting donation dollars. It's really great for helping people understand the gravity of what a survivor is going through in, a, in an abusive relationship, but it still doesn't solve the problem. And so we have to open up our minds and we've started pursuing some legislative work in the state of Texas to give survivors the right to choose their healing methodology and not only be able to choose Western medicine, that's kind of on the survivor side. We're also working on a program that is an e-course that will be made available nationwide to survivors called the Restored Program to help them restore all eight uh, life domains in their life, including economics, which we know is a huge component of unhealthy relationships and domestic violence. But yeah, so we've been we've been in the lab working on a lot and I just kind of feel like it's time for us to look at this from both sides. And I don't mean just compassion for someone who is abusive. That is absolutely not what I mean. What I mean is that while shelters are critical for safety and preserving life in a lot of cases, um, shelters and, and that movement was started for that very reason. But that is a solution to helping the person who is being caught or harmed uh, by that the other person. It's not a solution to really solve the problem itself. The person themselves who are causing the harm, how do we resolve that? And then that is still reactive and not proactive. So what else can we be doing proactively to prevent it from happening in the first place? So can you describe what those are? Can you describe specifically what factors can prevent those assaults and how are you supporting the other side? Where are you advocating for resources to be specifically put? Well, I mean, sometimes like just last week, I was downtown looking at property with some real estate investors who want to plant a second chance or re-entry program. The recidivism rate for domestic violence is 21%. Um, we know that people who are coming out also need services because they're not providing a lot of those services inside of the prisons. So that's just one example of NDVC, my nonprofit, coming alongside of a program like that and offering the services to teach them about healthy relationships and emotional regulation, recognition and regulation. And, you know, really, if, if we go back historically, like 
women were deemed as property from day one. Along the way, women decided that we wanted the right to ask for a divorce. So we got to the point where we could do that. Today, if you look at women, we're very independent, right? And we celebrate our, our independence and being able to thrive on our own. Economics is a huge, huge factor. It is one of the largest reasons why a woman will stay in an abusive relationship outside of being afraid for her life if she leaves. And so there's an organization that we're working with right now to develop uh, a university. And that university teaches about business and it teaches about wealth building. And that's right here in my home city. So women need to understand how to thrive on their own economically how to build wealth on their own economically, and how um, critical it is for you to be able to walk away from a relationship should it become unhealthy. And the reality is, is that most people are in unhealthy relationships. We just think that it's normal, mm. but it's not. Earlier, you described how your advocacy uh, methods and tenants and, and dedications are somehow are sometimes disagreed with by other advocates. Can you share exactly why? Is it specifically because the the concept of resources being allocated toward rehabilitation programs, you know, post-incarceration dedicated toward um, the those that exhibited that violence? Is that the issue? What is the exact issue why people disagree with your methods of healing on both sides, as you say? Because in the world of advocacy, you are taught that you must choose a side. You cannot be for people who are abusive and for a survivor at the same time. It's in reality, we are for healthy relationships. We're really not for one or the other. We're for people knowing how to have a healthy relationship. It's a human right to be in a healthy relationship. And a lot of a lot of advocates just feel that that is offensive because the narrative from day one is victim versus villain. It's, you know, just the way that things go. You know, in the, in the case of cancer, cancer is the villain and the person enduring that is the victim. I don't believe in that terminology. Even I'm not a victim. Nobody has a right to call me a victim. I've never been a victim. And it's difficult as well in, in oftentimes with the DV situations where the cycle is such that the same human can occupy both positions over and over and over again. You know, it's not binary and then you're always in that box forever. You're not given one lane from birth and then that's always the lane that you occupy. That's partly what is so devastating about this trauma um, is oftentimes the victims become the villains, using quotes here. Um, and it's that cycle that you're trying to break out of. Um, can you share, other than the legislation where it will provide survivors the means to and the, the ways to heal by their own selection of choices, are there any other deficiencies that you see that exist in the legislative system? What are their holes? What other laws do we need? Well, in the state of Texas, for example, we have a state law that mandates that all teenagers are educated about healthy relationships through the school system. Do I think that it's really the school's job to do that? I think it's really the parents' job to do that and mm -hmm. to emulate as well. Um, however, it, that, that legislation doesn't exist in every single state. And so if that's the only opportunity for a teenager to be exposed to education around healthy relationships, 100% we need it nationwide. And in terms of other legislation, I mean, I would say that there needs to be some sort of law 
that better diversifies the funding that comes out of VAWA and VOCA because there's a monopoly on that funding. And there's equally a lot of red tape around it. And so it it limits what organizations can do on the ground really to resolve that issue or to prevent it in their own communities. So for example, if you were getting VOCA or VAWA funding as a shelter, you are mandated to participate and collaborate with the police force, with the state attorney's office, and so on and so forth. Well, what do you do when those entities are the problems themselves? And then where's the money for the grassroots organizations that are doing the day-to-day in the trenches work? The money has been monopolized. And, And most people don't realize that a lot of that money goes to funding prisons. <laughs> we, we need to reallocate. We need to take a real look at that funding and reallocate some of that funding to build um, community programs that will prevent it in the first place. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Conditional funding is so real and many people don't realize that Funding from governments come with exactly that, with conditions. Um, And when the conditions are either antithetical to the mission or sometimes if they just get in the way, like you just articulated, then it's really difficult to have your faith maintained by these groups. Um, And what I see, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, there's different layers and tiers of these resources and these help needed. Like you mentioned the shelters for safety. There's the, the urgency and the immediacy that, women and and survivors need in this moment. And then there's the gradating levels and then the support through the court proceedings, the support economically after the support in the way of education and the like. There's there's a lifetime of support, frankly, needed um, for these survivors. And at each level, at each juncture, there's a different, not only need, but a different than resource that comes into play. Is that sort of an accurate understanding, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm 12 years, you know, since the fire and there's things that I've needed differently along the way. And so I, I continue to say that even our transitional models in the, our transitional housing models in the country are not suffice. There's a nonprofit out of Colorado Springs. It's being a speaker. Every time I've gone and spoken, I've always asked to go in and um, tour their program and meet the survivors in shelter or transitional. So I've seen a lot of models across the entire country and many of them uh, are just not long-term, you know, having a woman be able to support herself with a roof over her head is one thing, helping her understand how to build sound, solid foundations, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, um, economically, educationally, through her professionally. Those are the domains that we address through the the program that we're building as an e-course. It is a holistic approach and it takes a long time. I don't know about you, but ground zero after the Twin Towers to go to the Freedom Tower, to build that tower was like 10 years. That is what I often describe, you know, for a woman coming out of domestic violence, building your life from ground zero is not going to happen overnight. And yes, we do need the services and the support along the way. Can you share, if you're comfortable sharing, you've said all these years out, what then are your needs now? For me, it really comes down to um, ownership in owning my own home. It's the only thing that has not been restored from the fire. 
my credit was absolutely destroyed. I had medical insurance. My doctors were out of network. The checks were being cut to my ex-husband. He was instructing his power of attorney not to pay the doctors. I came out of that with over $100,000 in medical bills. That's another piece of legislation that I want is that we cannot be held responsible financially when a crime has been committed against us. I attempted to sue him civilly, but his pension is protected by the state of New York. So with that being said, that is my my biggest challenge um, now, and I'm working on it. I'm aligned with coaches. I've got coaches all around me, but I'm coming out of pocket to pay for all of that. And I'm not saying that you know we shouldn't or we can't. There's some of us that can pay for that. But who's the guy that tells you like, you know, there's so many people that came in and supported us. If there's anything that I would have wished for, it was number one, someone who understood burns and could have been there to help me understand just the injury itself. And number two, someone who would have been dead set on helping me build a rock solid foundation from day one versus band-aids on gunshot wounds. Can I ask, did that factor into the legal proceedings? someone who apologized and took responsibility after sentencing and yet after the, you know, what was supposed to be an aberrant act and, and, and out of the normal act, why then did he instruct the, the, his power of attorney not to have the checks go toward your medical care? That is a, that's a lasting assault. That is a lasting yes, insidious. Yes, it is. It is. So how- It is. Was that- so he, this was all during, you know, the, the trial took two years. So that all these checks were being, you know, cut during that time period. And there's other inner workings of why that power of attorney was no longer his power of attorney and so on and so forth. What I will say is this, when we got to the divorce hearing and the judge brought up child support, what he did say is that um, he basically didn't need a judge to tell him to pay child support. And he opted to pay double of what the court would have asked of him. However, that has supported the children this entire time. I've never received a dime and I'm blessed and lucky enough that I've had surgeons and people that have been willing to just donate all of the reconstructive surgery I've had, like everything. I'm so blessed. I'm not taking away from that at all. Uh, however, it would be nice if he stopped paying that child support and said, hey, guess what? You can keep the check for the next 20 years. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little, a little funny with it here, but that's just me. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Will you do it? Probably not. And in the system too, you know, we have laws that state that criminals cannot benefit economically from their crimes, right? You can't mm -hmm. write a bestseller about how you did it and then recoup the proceeds from that in part mm -hmm. because of crimes that have, that's how they've changed the fabric of society. So you would think the inverse would be true also. Like, why should you be economically penalized? Why should you be just gutted financially and still someone has the power of whether or not to send checks your way? I mean, that that seems like such a foreign concept, like so anti everything that we're supposed to be in agreement over, which is compassion, as you said earlier, but also advocacy. There's yeah, I mean, my my car was repossessed from the driveway, too. It was also burned. Honda Financial took that car did what they needed to do, sold it. I still had to pay it off. It, it, I worked to the president of Honda Financial. He didn't care or he didn't give my letter, one or the other, right? And why is it his responsibility either? But at the same time, you know, there was a law that was passed in the state of Florida. It used to be that you could not sue your spouse for personal injury until one day someone had legislation, legislative, legislation changed 
And now you could, which is why I attempted to do so. And should he have paid the $1.8 million that we were seeking? 100% he should have paid it. And I think that legislation needs to be changed. I agree. And what is a life worth? You know, I mean, if, if almost taking a life is worth, and we're speaking clinically here because this was the legal system, is worth a lifetime plus 60 years, then wouldn't you think it would be monetarily at least $1.8 Isn't the pricelessness of a human life the whole point? I mean, I yeah. just, this, it's really difficult to, to think that those loopholes haven't been yet closed, given that one in three women are still a victim of DV, to your point, given the prevalence, given the fact that this penetrates all socioeconomic levels, all everything, no one is untouched by this. And yet those glaring injustices still exist. What else don't I know? What else would you like to share with listeners about the NDVC or, or your story or your message or anything? I would say that there is truth in rising from the ashes of our past, that anyone and everyone is capable of anything, give it or be it positive or negative. I've, I've chosen to be positive and it has been my greatest defense mechanism, (laughs) my greatest um, strength to look at the bright side of everything. And so I just encourage every human being in the world to be willing to look into the mirror. It was incredibly hard to face the physical damage for me to look into the mirror for the first time, but that evolved into me looking into the mirror, into the, the inside of me. And so I just encourage everyone to Look at themselves in the mirror, know your worth, know your value. Do not play yourself into thinking that warning signs are not warning signs because they're red for a reason, but also look for the green signs, right? Don't just think about what domestic violence is, but what does a healthy relationship look like? And what is your responsibility in that um, arena or in that area of your life? Because ultimately, we're the ones who decide what our boundaries are. People cross boundaries. And if we allow them to cross them again, ultimately, we are allowing those people to cross our boundaries. We have to hold ourselves accountable. And so all in all, you know, it's been over a decade for me. And what I've learned through myself and other women and survivors alike and children that are impacted by this is that we've got to do something different. I think that that involves being proactive versus reactive. And we have got to address the root of the problem, which is not the survivor. Audrey, it's been such an honor to hear your story and to hear um, your experiences. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for trusting us with that story and to carry this um, really important, thoughtful, nuanced, effective message that I know I've received fully today. Your boys have an incredible mother. You said they're they're half you. They are they have an incredible superhero for a mom. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it so much. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. 
send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.